Heavenly Father, I ask God right now that you would humble our hearts before your word. Your word is truth, cleanses like a fire. It's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intents of our heart. And tonight, God, we're asking that your spirit would speak to our heart. I ask, Father, that we would grapple with the truth of your word with humility and with honesty and with an open heart and an open mind. I ask you, Father, that we would be willing to set aside uh, preconceived ideas that are not in accord with your word tonight. And that we would come to your word afresh, being taught by your spirit anew. Have your way right now, Lord God. You be our teacher. Help me, Father, to convey what, as I understand your, your word saying, to do so with humility, with love, to be able to speak your truth. Spirit of God, have your way here tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. To preface the topic for tonight, the possibility of apostasy, uh, I want you to know that your pastor has been through a theological turn um, in his growing up days. And by growing up, I mean to at least the age of 30 and obviously continuing to grow up. But for me, there was about 10 years in my journey with Christ. I gave my heart to Christ at 14, between 20 and 30. I had been to a Calvinist college, had been taught that. I kind of grew up in that uh, strain of theology. Um, I, I can't say I ever fully agreed with it, but I appreciated a lot of it. Between age of 20 and 30, uh, I had been taught quite a bit. I had been studying the Word quite a bit. Um, but I, I chose that I was not going to read any books on a variety of topics. I just wanted, uh, as much as possible, the word to speak to me and not be influenced by man. Um, I don't say that because what I'm sharing with you tonight is the absolute truth. I will have to say, I believe it to be the truth. I believe it to be the correct understanding of Scripture. But I'm sharing all of this to say that I've been, been, I've been on both sides of the fence. When I came to the age of 30, as I was looking through the various doctrines, where do I stand on all of these positions, all of these doctrines, this was the last one that I began to examine. And for me, it started going through the book of Hebrews. And so next week, we're going to be spending quite a, quite a bit of time in the book of Hebrews. And I want us to be fair with the book of Hebrews. And can I say this, that when I held to what I'm going to call instead of the Calvinist position, because that's not really fair to characterize this position as the Calvinist position. So I'm going to, I'm going to make up a term, and I'm going to call it the eternal securist position. So I'm going to refer to the ones who hold to once saved, always saved, or eternal security as an eternal securist view, or the eternal securist would say. So I'm saying that so you understand why. Um, because there are certainly plenty of people who are not Calvinists that still hold to this view. Uh, I held to this view very firmly. Um, whenever I came, though, to the book of Hebrews, um, and we're going to start in chapter 3, we're going to look at chapter 6 and chapter 10, but as I began to look at the whole of Hebrews, its theme, its purpose, its direction, I began to realize that, and, and I knew this for some time, but every time, as an eternal securist, I would come to the book of Hebrews I truly felt as if I was missing something. 
And I, I would defend the eternal securist position tooth and nail, spitting and screaming and... No, I didn't do that either. But I, I truly held firmly to this. And, and I believed, as a young man in his teens, believed that anyone who held to a different teaching was, was a cult, belonged to a cult. Um, obviously, the Lord had to correct me in that. But this is my journey. And I had to, when I came to Hebrews, I just, because I was begin, as I would read it, I was saying, God, I am tired of forcing your word to say what I want it to say. And every time I came to the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 6 and 10, I felt like this is what I was doing. I felt like I was being dishonest with the word of God. I had read Calvin and Hewitt and others, and I was a firm, staunch believer in eternal security. But as I read those passages, I said, God, you need to undo me. And so here's what I'm going to I'm just going to, I'm going to set my theology completely aside, and as best I can, God, help me to set aside biases, preconceived ideas. I'm not going to take other passages of Scripture and read them in. I want you to teach me, and I want you to show me, just from the book of Hebrews, what does this teach? And when I was done, I came out on, the di- on a different end. Um, <clears throat> obviously, not everybody has done that. There's plenty in this world that hold to the view of eternal security. And should you be in a discussion with them, if you feel fully convinced by what I share with you tonight, I'm going to encourage you to approach this subject with tremendous humility. There have been great men of God who would disagree with what I'm going to share with you. My challenge, though, is as we go through these passages, they can be understood from different perspectives. Which one is correct or not, maybe not until we get to heaven will we really understand. But my view is there are three passages that I truly believe one holding the view of of eternal security cannot get around. And those are the ones that we're going to go into depth on. Hopefully one of them today and two of them next week as you'll see there. But as we do this, we're going to need to really be honest. And Because trust me, I have been one to take all of these scripture passages and, and read them in and force Peter and the author of Hebrews to say what I now would believe to not be what they were saying. So let's be honest, but let's be humble. And if you engage in conversations with others, just realize that the outcome of this doctrine does not determine our, our eternal destiny, but it may well determine how we live our life. Because here's the bottom line. If someone claims to be a Christian and they're living in sin and they are just completely rejecting Jesus Christ, they say that they, were, they believed and it may well be that they're backslidden, it may well be that they never gave their heart to Christ, it may well be, as my view would say, they have apostatized. But I will say this, that apostasy is rare. We're going to see that. But it is possible. That's why I call this the possibility of apostasy. The Calvinists would look at them and they would say, either you weren't saved or you're backslidden. And so you need to repent. I would counsel them, you're either backslidden, you never gave your heart to Christ, or you may have apostatized. But you need to repent. Because you, don't, you may not know if you've apostatized. We're going to get more into that, of course. But both would challenge the person to repent. <coughs> Do you see what I'm saying by this? 
we would both approach someone who is struggling in sin to the point where they, are, they do not seem to be living an exemplary Christian life in any way. We would call them to repentance, regardless of what view we hold to. Those who hold to eternal security say that their view holds more hope. We'll see if that's the case, especially when we get to Romans 11. So let's begin this journey now. As we go through this um, extremely debated topic in Christendom, okay? So the first passage I want us to look at, and we will start from the eternal security position. Um, I'm going to have us look at five specific verses. Obviously, there are many more, but I'm choosing the five that I believe would best represent their view. For me as an eternal securist, they best represented my view, but obviously there are many others. So let's look at those five. Number one, Romans chapter eight. I'm going to start with verse 29 where it says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And when we say glorified um, from the eternal securist position, they would say glorified means heaven. So do you see the weight of this passage here in that if God has, for those that God foreknew, he took those and he also predestined them and those he predestined he also called and then he justified and then he glorified, past tense not future tense and the weight of that then might suggest that this is so certain that you don't even need to put it in future tense It's a done deal. This is what's going to happen. And therefore, he puts it in the past tense. This is what, in the mind of God anyway, this is what has happened. And so we see this marching forth from God's foreknowledge and predestined to the outworking of his plan for the elect, for the called, the chosen, until finally they reach heaven and they would say there is no possibility then between these two bookstands that any should perish, that, that none should fall away. Why? Because they are destined from God's foreknowledge to being glorified. Do you see the weight then of this argument from Romans 8? Okay? I want you to feel this. This is not something we just want to... Yeah, well, they got it wrong. Okay? I want us to feel the weight of this. Here's what I'd like to do, though. I'd like us to look at, first of all, this word glorified. Because this word glorified is not just simply used to mean heaven. First of all, um, let me find my notes here very quickly. Excuse me. Um, in, as we looked at John chapter 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer was crying out to the Father that he would... Uh, unite the body of Christ, his, those that he had given him, and that they in turn, in being united, would, that all men might come to, uh, to know that the Father has sent the Son. And so when I preached on this, what was it, two Saturday nights ago, we realized that really when the body of Christ is unified and truly not just unified with one another, but unified with God himself, There is worldwide impact 
when the gospel is shared. That is, it, it, it's as if by uni- being unified with Christ and with one another, the Spirit of God freely flows and impacts cities, nations, and I believe the world, because I do believe that we will see a worldwide revival. The gospel will extend not just the preaching of the gospel, but the gospel, the knowledge of God, will extend from sea to sea. Not just pockets here and there, throughout the world. But there's one thing that he says, that he asks that he would do. He says, I have given, I'm sorry, verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are. So for us to be unified, Jesus is praying that, he's saying, I gave them my glory, the glory you gave me, so that they might be unified. So we need, we need Jesus' glory. What on earth does that mean? Does that mean we have to go to heaven first in order to be unified? Obviously not. So this word glory in taken in context, is piggybacking with the paragraph before in which Jesus asked them, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is equating sanctification with the glory that he has given us. This glory is not the entrustment of the gospel. It is some work that he has done in us so that we might be unified. The sanctification that has begun in us that propels us to greater sanctification, greater purity, so that we're unified. Because the problem with unity is not our theology, whether you hold to the eternal security view or to the possibility of apostasy view or some other view. That's not what creates disunity. It's how we present it. It's our pride that gets into it. It's us, it's me, it's my lack of sanctification. So Jesus prays for, their, for our sanctification and he equates that with the glory that I've given them. Now, if you're wondering if I've, if I've lined this up correctly, walk with me then over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and to see if this is not the case. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, what we're doing right now is we're trying to define this word glory or glorify. And in the context here of Romans 8, is it fair to characterize it as heaven, the eternal state. And my take on this is, no, it is not. This is not what Paul is saying. Does it include that? Yes, it does. Inasmuch as full sanctification includes heaven. But it is much more than that. And because it's much more than that, and it begins at our conversion and is a process, glory, being glorified is a process, for that reason, Paul puts it in the past tense. Paul does not put the word glorified in the past tense because even though it's future, in, his, in the mind of God, it's a done deal. That's the eternal securest position. That's the position I held for many, many, many years. I want us to see glory, this process of being glorified, from a different light. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory... <laughs> are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. Literal translation from glory to glory. How are we being transformed? 
from the state that I am in now to the next stage of maturity, to the next stage of maturity, to the next stage of maturity, or as Paul says it, from glory to glory to glory to glory. This is the process of being transformed by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That is what he means by being, by being glorified. This not only is just shooting from the hip, uh, this is not shooting from the hip and me just trying to insert my definition of glory, but Paul tells us, he, he already tells us what the end goal is, being conformed to the image of his son. He already tells us what he means by being glorified. The end goal is being conformed to the image of his son fully in heaven. What we, ex- we, we are sanctified in part now, we are sanctified in full later, we are sanctified, we are saved in part now from our sins, we are saved fully in heaven. Okay, in part now, fully then. And this is, many theological terms are, not all of them, of course, many of them are in part now, fully in heaven. Same with the word glory. So, for this reason, he puts it in the past tense. So, we are in this process of being glorified. Now, may I also say that Paul, as he is speaking here, his purpose is not to talk about man's end of things. Not, he doesn't, his purpose is not to talk about man's responsibility. He told us that in verse 28. Those who love God, and that's, that's man's goal, loving God. From there on, he places the full burden, the, I don't want to say the full burden, the full perspective of what he wants to teach from God's sovereign perspective. Do you see the word faith? in this progression of foreknowledge, predestination, called, justified, glorified. There's no place for faith. Does that mean we don't have to believe? Well, of course not. That's not Paul's purpose. His purpose is to show you and wow us, if you will, with the magnitude of the sovereignty of God. But to then take the step and make some sort of conclusion that, well, we must not need to believe to be saved is silliness. I don't know anyone who takes that position. Well, then what is wrong with us saying, well, he he doesn't address the possibility of stepping out of that covenant of faith either. He doesn't talk about stepping in to the covenant with faith. Why would he talk about stepping out of the covenant of faith? Now, the reason why the eternal securist uses this verse to uphold their position is because of the definition of glorified. Do you see this marching forward of the sovereign plan of God from foreknowledge to being glorified? But I think in all fairness of scripture and the context, this word glorified needs to be understood of this transforming process of sanctification, not the end goal only of heaven. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Okay. So I I don't feel that by reading this, that somehow Paul is excluding any possibility of apostatizing. Okay. All right. And again, we're going to hold questions until the very end, and I hope I can get through this quickly enough, but not too quickly, because I want us to understand what we're going through, so, but I, I want us to be able to ask those questions later. And, and if we have to ask the questions after class in our time together, we can do that, all right? Because this is a, I don't want to say hotly debated, because that implies contention. As brothers and sisters in Christ, that is never our goal, all right? But there's, there's considerable disagreement in the body of Christ on this issue. So I, I, I want to be fair with that. But we could probably talk all night on it. Okay, turn with me now to John 10, if you would. So again, if you have questions, please write them down. 
You believe that I made a mistake with a Greek or a translation or an understanding of something? By all means, write that down. I hope I'm humble enough to receive correction if indeed I need to be corrected on this. But John 10.28, one of the most significant um, verses in... I'm sorry, I was distracted because I realized when I was hitting Romans 20. Romans 8, I was supposed to touch on Acts 13, 48, but we'll do that with this next verse. This is one of the most significant verses, most often quoted verses, to support the view of eternal security. Again, there are many others, so this is probably the most quoted. And, I, and again, as we go through it, I want us to be fair. I want to be fair in presenting the view of the eternal securist, because I held that view for many, many years, 16 years. But... I want you to feel the weight of this argument, okay? Now, it says here, um, excuse me, it says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Verse 29, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. That means not perish for all ages. No one can snatch them out of my hand. I want us to look at three aspects. Well, before we look at three aspects, the, the view of the eternal security, uh, eternal securist is this, that if we, sh- if we believe upon entering into this covenant that we have with God, we have, this, we have eternal security as a promise to us. It is not only a promise to us, but is therefore promised that we will never perish. And the question then is, if we will never perish, you who believe, if you will never perish, then that means if you lack faith, if you somehow step out of the covenant of faith or fall away or apostatize, you will never perish. And therefore, the eternal security said, therefore, you cannot step out of this covenant of faith. As we are kept by the power of God. And we're going to come back to that verse in a moment. But I want you to feel the weight of this. Is it true then that when I believe, I have a guaranteed promise from God that I will never perish no matter what happens to me, no matter what I do, because I am kept by the power of God. My faith is sustained by the power of God. I cannot step out of covenant. And if I do, it would only demonstrate that I was never part of that covenant to begin with. So here is the promise. Eternal life. Well, what is eternal life if it ends? If you somehow could apostatize and go to hell, you had eternal life for maybe five years. That's not eternal life. Do you feel the weight of this argument? You can just nod your head. Because if you don't understand what I'm saying, I need to, I feel a little unfair to be able to speak on it more. Okay? I I want us now to look at at three things. Because we need to weigh this. And as someone who holds to an opposing position, I feel the weight of this teaching here. It's just that there are three aspects of it that I disagree with. And, And I think that if you see these three aspects, you're going to be able to step back and say, whoa. Now it makes sense. Okay? Not the eternal securist view makes sense, but what Jesus is saying makes sense. 
First of all, sorry, passage eight, the verse before it, I should have read to you, but he says, but you do not believe me. He's speaking to the Jews, but you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. Are his sheep the present sheep, the present and the future sheep? I, I don't want to get into that discussion. But what I do want us to see here is the parallel between Jesus' sheep and faith. You cannot be a sheep and not believe, and you cannot believe without being a sheep. You follow what I'm saying? Okay? That's like being in the kingdom of God. It's like being a part of Jesus' family, being his brother, he being the elder brother. Okay? When you believe, you are part of that sheepfold, but you are part of that sheepfold because you believe. Okay, and so I want us to see this connection here. Next thing I want us to do. Give me one moment here. That was actually the preceding verse 20. I'm sorry, my, the lighting here is, is bad. But thank you, verse 6. 26, yes, 26. Can I then say that eternal life is not just an expression of the quantity of life that we receive, but the quality of life that we receive. Scripture says, Acts 13.48, that I was supposed to read earlier, Acts 13.48 says, they were appointed unto etern- those who were appointed unto eternal life believe. Those who were appointed unto eternal life believe. Does it mean that those who were appointed to heaven believe? I want you to just wave the way to this because if God has elected you and me to heaven, then case is closed. There is no possibility of falling away. He is what God appoints, he will bring to pass. So if he has appointed you to heaven, you're there, buddy. You cannot escape that. You, the eternal security view is wrapped up. We don't need to continue on anymore. If eternal life simply means heaven. And I may suggest to you it doesn't. John repeatedly equates the life that we have right now having been dead in our sins and made alive in Christ. This life that I have now is eternal life. And it continues on when I die into my time in heaven forever and ever. Okay? So life and eternal life are equated. There are times in which eternal life, and it's clear, in this age and the age to come eternal life, in that sense, eternal life means heaven. Those are rare. Generally speaking, eternal life and life are equated. It is especially the case in Acts 13.48. So I know we're in John 10. We're going to segue just a little bit because we're looking at this word eternal life and it if we are given the promise of eternal life and God cannot go back on his promise of eternal life, then it's a done deal. So as we go to Acts 13.48, we need to ask this question, what does Luke, the author of the book of Acts, mean by eternal life? We understand what he means by eternal life. If you're at verse 48, where he says, all who were appointed to eternal life believed, Back up to the preceding verses in verse 46 where he says, we had to speak the word of God to you first. He's speaking to the Jews. 
since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Verse 47, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. That tells me right there, this is what the Lord has commanded us. He is about to share with me an Old Testament passage that will substantiate what he has just said. What has he just said? He has just said, we are called to bring the gospel to you, but you do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, so we're turning elsewhere. What verse does he quote? He quotes from Isaiah and he says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. Paul, the apostles, even us, a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Salvation is equated with what he says up here to be eternal life. Since you reject eternal life, since you reject salvation, we go elsewhere. Isn't that why he quotes from this passage? Paul, and therefore Luke in his writing, tells us what he means by eternal life by this passage that he quotes. It means salvation. Salvation is something that we possess now, and we will possess by God's grace into eternity. It is not just heaven. We were not appointed to heaven. We were appointed unto salvation. This life of Christ in us. The hope of glory. And this life will eventually, by God's grace, manifest itself or be fulfilled or complete in heaven. Okay? So it does not mean that we were appointed to heaven. See, here's my point. If God appointed me to experience life, I have. I have experienced life. I've not experienced heaven, but I have experienced life. I have experienced eternal life. I have experienced salvation. This is what I have been appointed unto. It is a sure thing in the mind of God. But what he has not said is, at least in these passages, that that means heaven is guaranteed as well. All right? Now... At this point, are you following what I am saying here? The, the weight of God's appointment to heaven means it's certain and I cannot follow away. But he has not appointed us to heaven. He has appointed us to eternal life or life itself or as Paul says here, salvation. Okay? And I've experienced salvation. Now, I'm, I'm, at this point, I want to explain why, what's, what's the whole thrust of this? Why, what's the big deal? We're going to get to that when we look at Romans 11, just not right now, okay? So let's go back, if you will. We, we're getting a grasp on what eternal life is, so let's go back to John chapter 10, and let's, let's look at this passage a little closer. I think where we tend to go wrong in our understanding of this passage that makes us feel compelled to say this passage teaches eternal security is that we view eternal life as a promise more than a possession. Now, I want you to consider that. If eternal life is merely a promise that I have not attained, I will receive it because that's the nature of God's promise. There may be some conditions and actually we'll see some conditions here. But... Eternal life is a gift. The gift of God is eternal life. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life is a gift. I possess it. He who believes has, possesses now, eternal life. John 6, 47. Eternal life is a gift. It's something I have right now. The question is not, will God go back on his promise to you of eternal life? The question is, can I forfeit the benefits of this gift that I have already received called eternal life? Can I forfeit the benefits of this gift that I already have called eternal life? Okay? Because eternal life is a gift. It is a possession. Each of us who believe in Jesus have it right now. The question isn't, will God go back on his promise? Because of course he won't. The real question is, can I forfeit the benefits of this gift? And I believe that the answer is yes. But he says we'll never perish. I want you to see here, going back to this idea of the parallel between Jesus' sheep and faith. He also shows us another parallel. I know them and they follow me. This is in the present tense. That means I know them today and tomorrow continually. So it's, it's active, it's progressive, okay? They call it the present, act, the, the, the present tense and it's continuous action. So I know them continuously or I know them daily and they follow me continuously or they follow me daily. See the parallel here, okay? That... He knows us, and that's a relational. It's just not he knows about me. He knows me, and I follow him. So they run parallel. Then we come across this, I give them eternal life. Would it not be fair to say that insofar as I follow him, I possess this gift of eternal life? I think we need to consider this. We need to see this, this thought, this process that Jesus is laying out for us. The sheep who believe, they, I know them, they follow me, and I will give them, because they believe in me, because they follow me, I will give them eternal life. And so he has given me eternal life. Why? Because I believe. But that does that necessarily mean then that this eternal life must manifest itself in heaven. And, and now that I have this, I cannot lose it. The, see, I, I think that you see here, not, not some promise of God that I will do this, but a gift that he gives us. Eternal life is not just some promise, but it is a gift. Once I believe, I have it. Promise fulfilled. And then he goes on to say, they shall never perish. Again, as long as I am following him, I have this gift of eternal life and I will not perish. He is not saying that once you believe, no matter what you do, you will never perish. Okay? Let me give you an illustration and I'm hoping this illustration... Will, will help you in understanding what, I am, what I'm saying here. I want you to imagine a pathway. At the end of the pathway is 
a city of the city of glory. Okay, there's not something that's real spiritual. It's, this is a literal pathway that you're on. On this, if if you move off the pathway, there are dangers that will consume you, and you will die. Either side of the pathway, Jesus says, or or me. Let's say I'm leading you. Maybe I'll, I'll feel more. I'll feel better if I say Jesus. Okay, so Jesus says to you. Um, those who follow me on this path will never perish. I want you to think about that. Those who follow me on this path will never perish. Does that mean that now that I'm stepping on this path, woohoo, that means I will never perish, even if I step off the side of this path? Well, of course, the eternal securities say, well, that's going to be impossible. You can't do that. I'm going to come back to that argument when we hit Romans 11. But it, it just simply means as long as you're on this path, I know you and I have this relationship with you and you have this gift of eternal life and you will never perish as long as you're following me. Present, active, indicative, present tense. Continuous action. Following him. Possessing eternal life. That then, as long as we're on this path, we will never perish. We will, again, the Greek is not perish for ages to come or age after age, unto the ages, okay? So I feel the weight of the eternal securist perspective on this, but I think that they're mistaken when they say that this is a promise, a done deal, and you cannot forfeit it because eternal life is a gift and it is my possession. But then we are told, see, no one can snatch you out of my hand. No one can take you off of this pathway. You're on this pathway of faith. You're following Jesus and cannot be removed. And my question is, that is awesome. No one can snatch me from this pathway. Excuse me, I'm fitting it into the illustration here. The reason why Jesus says this is because he wants you to think back to the thief and the robber. Now, we didn't read this in the beginning of the chapter, but in the beginning, he talks about the robber and the thief who come in to steal the sheep, and they come in a different way. But Jesus, see, he's the good shepherd. He's the gate. He doesn't, everybody has to go through him, not some other way. He also contrasts it with the wolf. Several verses later, 11, 12, 13, that when the wolf comes to steal the sheep, the hireling runs away because he doesn't have any investment in the sheep. He doesn't want to lose his life for the sake of a sheep. I mean, let me see. See, uh, the value of a sheep, the value of my life, guess what I'm going to choose? But Jesus says, you know what? I'm not a hireling. I'm the good shepherd. I actually am going to lay my life down for the sheep. Okay. So when he says, no one will snatch you from my, from my hand, he is wanting us to reflect back to the thief and the robber, back to the wolves, those things outside. Even Satan himself, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, cannot snatch you out of the kingdom of God. That is a truth, church. But the question is now needing to be posed, what about me? Can I remove myself? Jesus does not touch on that. He just is talking about the, the wolf, the, the thief, the robber, the devil who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He says, as long as you're following me, they will, he will never be able to snatch you off of this pathway. Because you have eternal life and you cannot perish as long 
is you're on the path. So Jesus has not even addressed this question, well, what if I stop believing or apostatize or fall away or whatever word you want to insert there? He doesn't address that. It's just that what he does address, we cannot say that apostasy is impossible. Okay? I need to move along to John 6.39. Okay. Just kind of trying to gauge my time here. John 6.39. Let, let, let me now introduce, going back to, you can, you can move ahead to uh, John 6.39, but going back to John 10. 1 Peter 1.5, and that's when we get to the uh, issue of apostasy, possibility of apostasy. 1 Peter 5.15 says that we are kept by the power of God through faith. We need to be careful. The entire phrase is not we are kept by the power of God or that our faith is kept by the power of God. We are kept by the power of God. We are kept on this pathway by the power of God through faith. Through faith. As I continually follow Jesus. The Bible does not say that God, God's power supports my faith. It says it supports me. Now, we're, we're going we're gonna to get into this, especially if we have a chance to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, those who are faithless and that particular passage, if you remember studying that. Okay, so we are kept by the power of God through faith. We are on this pathway by faith, and by faith, God will support us, and no one can snatch us from this. The devil himself, I don't care how strong his temptations are, he cannot pull us away. That is our choice. And we're going to get to that, of course, later when we look at apostasy. All right? We just have to be careful. God does not keep our faith by his power. He keeps us by his power through faith. All right? Okay, John 6, 39. He says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. That does seem rather certain, does it not? God's will, God's set purpose is that I that Jesus will not lose any. And that means you and me, if we have been because he says in verse 37, look look there in verse 37, all the Father has given me will come to me. That's a certainty. All those that the Father has given to the Son that he has foreknown before the foundations of the earth, they will come to Jesus. And it seems as if when he says, and this is the will of him who sent me, we tend to understand this to be his set purpose, his, you know, his predetermined will that cannot be annulled or uh, escaped from. It's certain. And if that is the case then no one can, what does he say here? Um, Jesus shall not lose any of them. All right, two things. As we look at this, we need to understand that this word will is from the word thelo. There are two Greek words for will. 
that are used most frequently. Um, Bulamai, and you can do your best to spell that one, it doesn't matter. Bulamai and Thelo. They are used interchangeably. Um, the word that when Jesus, when the Father says, this is the, when Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me, this is the will of the Father, does he mean the set purpose? He does not. He does not. If you, if you would, um, okay, great. I wrote the verse down somewhere. Um, great. So I wrote down the thought and not the passage of scripture. You know, when I'm done, the passage of scripture is going to come from me, come to me. But this is not, um, this is, when it says, and this is the will of him who sent me, this is not the, this is not a truth or a promise. This is a desire or a goal of God. Much as when he says in Second Peter 3, 9, not desiring, but that's the word bulamai, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I'm sorry, it really bothers me that I didn't write that scripture passage down. Um, that's what I'm thinking. Um, just with regard to how the word is... Okay, here we go. I'm remembering it. First uh, Timothy. I'm, not, I'm wondering, maybe I wrote it down somewhere else. But First Timothy 2, I believe it's verse 4. 1 Timothy 2.4, we have the word fellow, and Paul says this in verse 4, referring to God our Savior, who wants all men, who fellow wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Does that mean that all men will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? Is it God's promise? Is it God's set purpose that all men will come to a knowledge of the truth? Is it a truth that all men will come to a knowledge of the truth? Or is it the desire and the longing of God that all men should come to a knowledge of the truth? I think it's, it's the latter. To, to show you this, if you were to go, let's do this, John 17, the question is, did Jesus ever lose any? And the truth is he did. And he tells us as much that he did. If we were to look at John 17, verse 6, in his high priestly prayer, he says, To the Father, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Who are those that were given to Jesus? They would be his sheep. They would be those who come to him. Specifically, his apostles. But it would include all those who believe as a result of the apostles. Okay? But he is specifically praying for his apostles right now. He later prays for those who will later believe. And he then goes on in verse 12. And and let me just say this. He says here in verse 12, while I was with them, we see a strong consistency in this pronoun. 
We saw it in verse 6, to those whom you have given me. Those, they, them, they're the same people. It starts with the apostles that he is praying for here, and then it will include all those who will believe as a result of their message. But we don't get to that until verse 26 and later. Excuse me, verse 20 and later. Here he's praying for his apostles. And he says, while I was with them, these 12 you've given me, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None, and the Greek has the words of them. That's significant. None of them have been lost except the one doomed to destruction. The literal Greek there is son of destruction. Nothing about predestiny. He wasn't predestined to destruction. It's just that his nature was one of destruction. And I would, I would say to you that there was a time when the father gave Judas to Jesus that he truly believed in him. Those that you gave me will come to me. That was God's promise to Jesus. All those that, you, that the father gave him will come to Jesus. And if you go back further, will come means to believe in that context of John 6. So those that the when John, when Jesus, excuse me, when Jesus is praying, those that the father has given me, he's praying for those that have believed in me. The 12, Judas was one of the 12. Judas believed in Jesus. The father had given Judas to Jesus. Knowing, though, that at some point he would betray Jesus. And somewhere along the path, Satan got a hold of his heart. It may very well have been as the keeper of the money bag. He opened his heart because he put his hand in the money bag for his own purposes on a regular basis. At some point, the enemy stole his heart, not just in sin, but now in disillusionment. Is Jesus ever going to become the Messiah? His heart was hardened, and he rejected Jesus and chose the world, Judas apostatized. I have lost none of them except the son of destruction. Okay? So Jesus did lose one of his 12. So we can't just simply say that the will of the Father is that Jesus lose none, therefore Jesus will lose none, because Jesus tells us he did lose one. The will of the Father is not the set purpose of God, but it is the desire and heart of God. Not desiring that any should perish, not or desiring that all men should come to a knowledge of the truth. Okay, it is the desire of God. So I think we have to say we really cannot look at John six, I'm sorry, thirty nine, and say therefore we cannot be lost. That would not be Jesus's point. Okay, Philippians one six. Let's turn there if we could. Am I going through this too quickly? Are you able to absorb it? Okay? All right, all right, good. Philippians 1.6. I love this passage. Love it. Love it, love it. When I I held to the eternal securest view, honestly, this was my favorite passage. And then maybe John 10.28. But he says here, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Guaranteed. 
will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, I was reading someone's position, they were an eternal securist, and they purposely chose a verse, it's from the RSV, that mistranslates this verse. And I'm going to be honest with you, I got upset when I saw that he did that. I did not think it was fair. It, the RSV says, um, he who begun a good work in us will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Do you, do you see the weight of that? He'll carry it on to, he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. If he began it, he'll complete it at the day of Christ Jesus in heaven. But this word is not translated at. Actually, it's never translated at in the New Testament. It means until, a creed. And we, we see it in the, the verse before where he says, until now. From then until now. It, it is, it's translated that way. It does not mean at. I'm sorry, the RSV got this, got this wrong. What this verse is saying, NIV, I believe, King James, NASB, they understand it correctly. He who began this good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So here's the question. I, I, I hope you can see, again, the weight of the eternal securist view here, that this is what God will do, it's promised. My question, though, is, if there are absolutely no conditions to this, or no nuances to this verse, and it is an outright promise that if he began the good work of sanctification, and he's done that in all believers, the promise is he will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That means I'm going to heaven, and I cannot apostatize. So do you see the, the, the view here? My question then is, if that's really what he's saying, does that mean that every single believer will be brought to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, that God will continue this progress and they'll grow more and more and more until finally in heaven they'll be perfect? I wish that were the case. I'd like you to look around at the body of Christ. There are many, many frozen chosen, if you will. There are many who, who have believed in Jesus and they have not grown. And I'm not going to say this because they've never really believed, there are many infants in Christ who are years and years old in Jesus. And God is not bringing that work to completion. I mean, did Paul just get it wrong? And, and I think every single one of us have had not just one, but many people in their lives that they have known maybe all of their lives and they have never grown in their faith. Now, some would take the bold position it's because they never came to Christ. There are few that would do that. Even of the eternal securest position, there are few. But even from the eternal securest position, they would agree there are many in which the work of Christ is not brought to completion. It's dead stopped. And then when they get to heaven, okay, then it gets ramped up and they are fully glorified, fully glorified in heaven and complete in Christ. But here on earth, they are not growing. If they're growing, it's, it's about as fast as the tectonic plates move today. <laughs> Which is about, I think it's about the uh, length of a fingernail per year. So what then, is, I mean, is Paul wrong here? But Paul prefaces with this, I am confident. 
He is saying, I believe this is what's going to happen. Why is Paul expressing, not with certainty, like this absolutely will, but this is Paul expressing his heart. He even tells us he's expressing his heart and not a theological truth in the very next verse. He tells us, is it right for me to feel this way about you, about all of you, since I have you in my heart? This is the father's heart for his child. I believe you are going to continue on this progress. Why does he speak with such confidence? Because they are partners, look at the verse before, they're partners in the gospel. They've been willing to lay down their, that's a, that's a tough, um, what word am I thinking of? That, that, that is a, uh, that's a clear indication for someone to be willing to lay down their life, to partner in the gospel, because Paul in this chapter talks about his persecutions and they've partnered with him in those, in, in the preaching of the gospel and they have themselves suffered. Look at the end of chapter one. They have suffered with him, just like him. That's what it means to be partners or sharers with, in the gospel with Paul. They have suffered as well. Because you have been so bold and willing to lay down your life, I can see the devotion in you and the passion for Jesus. And I'm telling you right now, as he speaks with this fatherly, almost prophetic heart, I am confident that he who begun a good work and you will carry it on to completion. But he does not say that about all of his churches. I dare not say he would say that to the Corinthian church. And he doesn't. Okay? The Corinthian church, many of them had known the Lord for a while and they were still infants. They were unspiritual or fleshly or worldly. That is looking just like the world. And you could only drink milk. You couldn't take solid food. All right, so I'm going to suggest to you this is not a guarantee. This is not a guarantee to every Christian. Man, you are going to you're going to grow so phenomenally. You're just going to, man, you're going to, you're, you're going to, your faith is going to grow and you're going to, because God is in this and he will certainly bring that work to completion from beginning to end until finally heaven itself. He's not speaking it with that certainty that that's a promise. He's saying from a father's heart, I have you in my heart and I've seen this and this is what I believe for you. Okay, do you see the difference here? Okay. And I truly, I, I want us to consider the weight of those following verses. That it is, is not some guaranteed promise here for every single believer. This is Paul speaking from a father's heart. Why? Because I have you in my heart. So of course it's right to feel this way about you. Okay. And honestly, can I say, I feel that way about every single one of you. Well, wait a second, let me think about it. Yes, every single one of you. Sorry. Every single one of you. And I've seen, I've seen your heart. I've seen how you pray and how you worship. And, and you love the Lord. And I can say, as Paul would, I am confident of this, that you began a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Not just at the day of Christ, but until the day of Christ Jesus. From now until then, he will work in you. Because I've seen you partner in the gospel. I've seen how you pray. I've seen how you have loved on one another. And you do that because you love Jesus. So as a father to you, I can say that as well. I cannot say that about everybody in the body of Christ. Not, I'm not talking about Paraline right now. But I'm, I cannot say that about everybody that I, I know pretty well outside of, you know, in the body of Christ in general. I wish I could. All right. Um, lastly, and I'm only going to touch on this because, oh my goodness, I've got 15 minutes. 
Actually, no, I am going to be going past quarter of, but still. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it simply says, having believed, you were marked in, you were marked with this, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Two quick things. Number one, a seal does not mean locked up. So if you seal something, whatever's inside can't get out. If the Holy Spirit seals you, then that means the Holy Spirit as a deposit can't get out. You're stuck with him no matter what. I, I, that sounds too negative, sorry. But it, that word seal does not mean that. The word seal is would just like if you were to seal an envelope and put melted wax on it with your signature ring or signet ring, that is a seal. Can you break the seal? Well, yeah, of course. The purpose is not so that you can't break it, all right? It, it, the, the seal, the Spirit is our seal as in he is that which is of God given to us. It is his seal on us. It is his name on us. And I'm referring to Revelation 3 at this point. The name of God on the believer's forehead. The, we, are, that we are sealed in God with the Holy Spirit. But he's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, having believed. Well, he is that deposit. As long as that deposit is there, it acts as a guarantee. When I stand before God, should I continue in faith to follow him faithfully? I'm sorry, that was redundant. The spirit in me is my ticket in, if you will. It's guaranteed. God will not turn me away. The spirit is that deposit. But that is contingent on my continuing to believe. So that door is for 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 a possibility of apostasy is not closed with Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It's not closed with that, okay? It's not as if he's a deposit that you cannot lose. It, it just doesn't say that. So let's be careful. Let's not read into that verse, and I'm speaking to the eternal securest view. Let's be careful. Don't read into that verse what it's not saying. Because when I held to that view, I used this verse, and can I confess to you I was mistaken, I believe. Okay? So here's what I want us to do. I want you to turn to Romans 11. Um, uh, let me uh, let me think on this for one moment. Here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have us, just because of the time, I'm going to, instead of us looking at Romans 11, um, talks about branches being broken off. We're going to look at that next week. I want you to take the paper that I passed out to you, Second Peter and the False Teachers, and I want us to spend time on that. Second Peter chapter two. Um, if you look at the next page next week, you'll see the verse that I was going to look at, Romans eleven twenty two. 
Um, I was going to include that only because it will give us this understanding of... Okay, I'll just share with you next week. Alrighty. Um, Second Peter chapter 2, the entire chapter is devoted to these false teachers that have crept in. Um, the question is, as we read verses 20 to 22, the question we're going to need to grapple with is, were these false teachers ever truly saved? Or were they nominal Christians? And by nominal Christians, they, were, they had the appearance of being a Christian, but they truly were not regenerated. And therefore, they were not saved. They were not genuine Christians. Okay? We need to grapple with that question because my suggestion to you is that from the viewpoint of an eternal securist, there are too many unanswered questions with this passage. And so let's just go ahead and read through it, and then we're going to go through this paper that I handed out. Okay? If they, referring to the false teachers, I do believe he's referring to the false teachers here. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to his vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mire. Just like any good author, Peter does not just throw out to us new terminology such as escape the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and wonder, well, what does he really mean by that? Is it possible that there are nominal Christians who have cleaned up the outside, look holy on the outside, but they're full, as Jesus said, of dead men's bones? Is that possible? Peter already tells us what he means by this phrase. Personally, I believe he tells us very clearly what he means. He did that in chapter 1. So let's go to chapter 1 and let's see, Peter, what do you mean by knowing Jesus and by a knowledge of Jesus escaping the corruption of the world? First of all, this word knowledge is epignosis. I would venture to say that there are a few other authors that focus on the distinction between epignosis and gnosis. Both of them are translated knowledge, but Epignosis tends to mean full knowledge, as in relational or experiential knowledge, okay? But generally speaking, a full, mature type of knowledge. He says here in verse 2, he says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What type of knowledge is he talking about? Just knowing about Jesus? or truly knowing Jesus and having a full saving knowledge of Jesus? Which one? 
First one or second one? Second one. He's not talking about knowing Jesus because it's you know, God's grace and peace are being poured out to you in abundance. Why? Because you're nominal Christians? No. Because you have this epignosis. That's the Greek word here. Epignosis of the Father and the Son. You have this full understanding, this full knowledge, this intimate relationship. He then goes on to the next verse and says, Divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our epignosis, our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. This is not someone who simply has a scanty knowledge about Jesus, but an intimate experiential knowledge has truly been rescued. And we actually find when Peter uses this word epignosis throughout his letter, that's exactly what he means. And he means no other. He never uses it to refer to a nominal Christian. Okay? Except perhaps the text in question. So let's dig deeper. Is it possible that maybe that's an exception right there that we read in 2 Peter 2.20? Maybe there that is a nominal Christian who has a knowledge about Jesus but not a true experiential life-changing knowledge? Well, he has already told us that these People he's writing to have a knowledge of Jesus and having this knowledge, what else does he say? So that, verse four, so that through them, these precious promises as a result of our knowledge of him have been, through them, you may participate in the divine nature, the character of God, the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world. I hope that sounds familiar to you. Caused by evil desires. This is the same phraseology that he uses for the false teachers. They escape the corruption of the world through a knowledge. The NIV has it in verb form by knowing. It's really a noun, whatever. That makes any big deal. But it's the same word, epignosis, and it's the same Greek words escaping the corruption of the world. He has already told us what he means by escaping the corruption of the world through a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what those that he is writing to have experienced. Do you see the, the import, the, the significance of this? He's saying to the, 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 that he's writing to, this is what's happened to you. Let's transition now over to these false, false teachers. They, too, have had a full knowledge of Jesus himself, and by that full knowledge, they, too, have escaped the corruption of the world. If they didn't escape it by just trying to clean themselves up and look good. They did it through a genuine, life-changing knowledge of Jesus. Secondly, it says that they are again entangled in it and they are overcome. The word again implies a previous time of freedom. That at some point they were not entangled in it. That at some point they were not overcome. Pause. Think about that. Can the word again mean anything else? Again implies a previous time of freedom, a time in which they were not overcome. Can that ever fit a nominal Christian? I don't care how well they clean themselves up on the outside, their hearts are still filled with dead men's bones. There's death in them. They still have, been, they still have yet to be transitioned from death to life. They are not regenerated. They are dead in their sins. 
The unregenerated are always overcome by sin. They are never free. I'm sorry, Peter, if you're referring to nominal Christians, please do not use the word again, because there was never a time in which they were not overcome. But Peter says, having escaped the corruption of the world through a knowledge of Jesus Christ, they are again, they'd escaped it. But again, they're entangled in it and they're overcome. Someone who is a sinner, lost in their sin, has never been unentangled by their sin. Nominal Christians are entangled in their sin, church. They are overcome by their sin. They have never escaped the corruption of the world in their hearts. They're still filled with death. Peter, if he was referring to a nominal Christian, should not have used the word again, but he does so purposely because he needs us to know these people were just like you. And something happened. And they have again, again, become entangled and overcome by the corruption of the world. Number three, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Just picture this in your mind, if you will. Okay, so here's a nominal Christian. Uh, they make some sort of false profession of faith. They remain ungenerated. They're still lost in their sin. They get raised up in leadership in the church to begin teaching. And at some point, they apostatize. That we're going to have to look at the, the concept of apostasy more fully and what that means and what does it look like next week when we get to Hebrews. But he says that these people have, at some point, they, they got caught up in the corruption of the world again, and that their end is worse than the beginning. Can I ask you this question? A nominal Christian who cleaned up the outside, still caught in their sin, lost in their sin, and then they fall away from that cleaned up look, and it's become evident, I suppose, that they never were Christians. Can you say that their end was worse than their beginning? Can you ever say that a sinner has become more of a sinner? Or someone who was lost at the end became more lost? How is the end worse than the beginning? The beginning and the end were terrible, in rebellion, lost, death, separated from the life of God which is in Christ Jesus. They're the same. One's not worse than the other. Except, of course, if we continue on our understanding that these men were truly regenerated. They truly knew Jesus Christ. He truly had begun to sanctify them. But they stepped away and they trampled underfoot the Son of God again. They treated the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing. And they assaulted the Spirit of grace. Unless that happened. And then as we look at Hebrews 6, 4, it says that it is now impossible for those people to be renewed unto repentance and be saved again. Someone who is truly apostatized, and I'm going to tell you right now, I'm jumping ahead to next week's lesson, it is rare, but it happens. It's impossible for them to come back to Christ. Now we can truly say their end 
is worse than the beginning. They are lost in their sin. Before they came to Christ, there was hope that they could follow after Jesus. They did. They embraced the gospel. They began to be transformed, but they fell away, and now they cannot be renewed to repentance. They are lost forever. Now, I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead to Hebrews 6, and maybe that's not fair, but I need us to see that that's why he is saying the end is worse than the beginning. It's not that they're worse sinners or that they're more lost. It's now they can never come back to Christ because they're so (coughs) adamantly opposed to Jesus and their heart is so hardened and opposed to him. They're crucifying the Son of God all over again. Anyway, we'll look at that next week. Um... They have known the way of righteousness. Again, the word epignosis, full knowledge, experience. This is not superficial. Peter is consistent with this word epignosis, full knowledge. Not just a full head knowledge. A full head knowledge or, a, or head knowledge, he, he uses the word gnosis for. We know this because he does it. Add to your faith goodness and to goodness gnosis or gnosis which is intellectual knowledge and understanding in this way of truths. Not a relational, not a full knowledge of Jesus that's relational and experiential, but an understanding of truths, an understanding of God's wisdom and God's heart. Okay, this is what he is saying, add to your faith, goodness and to goodness, knowledge. He uses the word gnosis there. That is not the word that he's using here. He's not saying intellectually grasp the way of righteousness or grasp the holy commands of God. Know them up. It's not saying that they knew them up here. They epignosis, they knew them experientially. It was a part of their life. It was transforming them. They had known the way of righteousness. Number five, it would be better for them. Consider the weight of this. He says it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turn their backs on the holy commands. Wait a second. If he's talking about a nominal Christian, let's just back up a second. If he's talking about a nominal Christian, he is now telling us that it would be better for a nominal Christian never to have heard the gospel than to have had a false conversion. I don't know anywhere in scripture that backs that up. Nowhere. You're telling me that he was a nominal Christian and then they began teaching falsehoods and it would be better for them never to have known the way of truth, never to have heard the gospel? Well, at least by knowing the gospel, there's some chance that they could come to repentance if they're a nominal Christian. At least there's hope. But he's saying, you know what? It would have been better for them never to have had the gospel preached to them. Never for them to have latched on to those truths of the gospel and had them begun this work of sanctification and being rescued from their sins. It would have been better that they never even heard about the way of truth, the way of righteousness, than to have known it, experienced it, and walked away. Because now not only are they leading others astray, but they will never be brought brought back to repentance. They are now destined eternally for hell. They cannot repent. And again, we're going to look at apostasy and and my concern right now is maybe you're thinking, oh my goodness, what if if, if I 
turn my back on Jesus tomorrow and I'm lost forever. And, you know, hold on to that, okay? Please, that, that is not where I'm going with this. Though, as we get to Romans 11, we need to weigh what he means by we need to fear, okay? We'll talk about that next week. It would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Number six, the proverb has happened to them, or it has happened to them according to the true proverb. Some, like Hewitt, take this to mean that this passage, though it refers, he's an eternal securist, though it refers to a true believer, it only does so hypothetically. He builds a straw man. He builds a case for these people truly being believers and falling away, but only, to, only in essence to say, but it can never happen to you. All right? And so he calls this um, the hypothetical view. And, and my problem is I, I don't see anything hypothetical about this. Could it happen? It could, but that doesn't mean that it can't. He's not saying this could happen to the Christian, but it can't happen. It won't happen because of God's sovereignty. I, 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 let me just be honest. I find that a weak view. He does that with, he does that with Hebrews 6, and it's, it's just not a fair view. And we'll look at that. Um, but if a Christian could apostatize, then this is what would happen. But since they can't, we don't need to worry about that. I'm supplying that. But this text doesn't say that if this could happen, I mean, if it were possible for a, a, a someone to apostatize, then this is what it would look like. No, he's saying, he's speaking to, he's speaking this as if it is real. These people, it's not hypothetical. It's not a could it is, this has happened, church. Reality check. The true proverb has happened to them. Okay? Not hypothetical, very real. A dog returns to his vomit. Can I ask you this? Is it possible for someone who's lost in their sin to come back to their sin? If they're wallowing in their sin and they're never rescued from their sin, how can they come back to their sin? They're still wallowing in their vomit. They're still... Uh, Returning to their vomit, if you've ever seen a dog eat his vomit, not a pleasant thing in my opinion. But he does want, uh, he does want to be graphic because this, and, and, and dogs return to their, their dung as well and they eat it. He could have used that, but the proverb is the dog returns to his vomit in Proverbs. And I'm going to suggest to you, he must be talking about someone who truly first left his vomit in order for him to be able to return to it. A sinner has never left his vomit. This proverb is not true of them. But Peter says it is because these are real, regenerated people who have walked away forever from Jesus Christ. The sow that had washed who were wallowing in the mire wallowing in the mud. Some people make a big point that this is the middle passive voice, so it could be translated, washed herself. The sow washed herself 
and went back to her mud. So if she washed herself, if a Christian tried to wash himself, he's only going to do an outside job. I'm I'm sorry. Number one, we don't know for sure that he's using the middle voice because it's called the middle passive voice. They have the same ending. It could be translated either way. I would suggest to you, it doesn't matter whether the sow washed herself or the farmer washed her, which is kind of the way the NIV translated, is washed. It doesn't matter. The point is that she's washed. Feel the weight of that. Is the sinner ever washed? No. He might look good on the outside, but that doesn't mean he's washed. The mud is gone. Freed from it. The pig doesn't look dirty anymore, which is a rare occasion, by the way, but the pig doesn't even wash. Whoever did the washing, it doesn't matter. They're washed. And then they go back and they wallow in the mud again. The, the regenerated person who's been washed by the, the blood of the covenant has now gone back into their sin, the mud. They're lost. And he wants to warn them. These people are false teachers. These people, you do not want to listen to them. They will bring you down. This is what verse 19, 18 and 19 get at. They'll bring you down with them. That's the thrust of it. They're going to bring you down with them. They're not nominal Christians. These were truly regenerated. They, they passed the litmus test in the leaders amongst them. And they were brought into leadership. And somewhere along the line. Something happened in their heart and they, no one snatched them. They walked away. They made a choice and they left in faith. And I want to conclude with this. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says of them to introduce the false teachers. It says that they were, that they even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. From the eternal securist position, I always understood this, and I can't say I've read a ton of commentaries on this, but the ones I have read take this position, as I did, that this is just simply talking that on the cross, Jesus died for them. And that's the message. Jesus died for the sins of the world. And that's even the Calvinist position. All right? And that does not mean, has nothing to do with limited atonement. Okay? It, it's that Jesus... The, The gospel is Jesus died for the sins of the world. That's what it's simply talking about. But is that really what he's saying here? If you were to do a word study on this agorizo, excuse me, agorazo, we get the word agora, marketplace, the agora in Corinth, that this marketplace, it's this word agorazo is used many times. Six times, this being the seventh, six times it's used and every single time it refers to Christians who had been bought by Jesus. When were you bought? Every single time this is used, it doesn't refer back to the cross that you were bought there and then eventually you came to faith in Jesus Christ. No, it all, and you, you, I wrote the verses down so you can look at these. You were bought at the moment of conversion. The the blood of Jesus spilled for us at the cross that made the purchase available, that transaction, that blood was now applied to us at the moment of conversion and we were bought, we now belong to him. 
If we were bought at the cross, that means from the cross, I belong to Jesus. And there's no scripture verse that supports that. Jesus, I didn't belong to Jesus before my conversion. I belonged to Jesus at the moment of my conversion because that's when he purchased me. That's when he bought me. I was, I was bought by the devil. I was owned by him. I was his possession, not God's. I'm not saying God's hand wasn't on me. I'm just looking at this word agorazo and being fair with it. It is only used of literally the redeemed. You are not redeemed before your conversion. Okay, test that. Look these verses up. You are not redeemed before your conversion. These men were bought by the sovereign Lord. They gave their heart to Christ and they were purchased to be his own. And they walked away. This passage does not say these false teachers deny the sovereign Lord they claim has bought them. This isn't their claim. Peter is stating a fact here. This is a statement of fact. It's not just a supposition. I'm going to encourage you, especially if you did not have a chance to read through uh, these verses, to do that this week. Now, next week is praise and prayer. And so we're not going to be going over the following the the next passages in Hebrews. Um, But I'm going to encourage you, go over these passages again. I want you to weigh what's been taught this evening. Don't just take my word for it. I mean, I believe that I've covered it sufficiently, but that doesn't necessarily you understand it or that you're in agreement. And I'm asking you, please, just let's, let's be humble before God's word. Let's not take our preconceived theology and take the scriptures and make them fit our theology. That's the mistake that I've made for many, many years. And I threw that to the wind. I said, I'm not doing that anymore. And can I be honest with you? That was the hardest theological decision I've ever made in my life. It was. And as I approached these scriptures, and what I would say was, would be from an honest position, I believe the Lord showed me something differently. So you study these passages. You search the scriptures yourself. And, and see if these things are so. Okay, let me close in prayer. Father, I, I do want to thank you for the eternal life that we have. I do want to thank you for the life that we have in Christ, for the fact that you have purchased us as your very own possession and that you keep us by your power through faith. And that, Father, in your sovereignty, you will always pursue us. and You will always want our heart. And the devil and all of his minions will never, ever, ever, ever be able to snatch us from that pathway as we follow after you Jesus I am asking that you would quiet our hearts before us that's the job of your spirit as we examine to see whether we are in the faith that our hearts would be quiet quieted by the spirit of God in us that cries out Abba Father and you resolve any conflict you encourage us God pursue you as the God that bought us with and purchased us with purpose. 
that we would walk in that purpose. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.